Father, as we look into the scriptures, I pray, Lord, that you would teach us from the word of God. Father, I pray for help and strength and understanding. The illumination that only you can give from the scriptures, from the word of God. Father, I pray that you would do that. Speak to our hearts, O Lord. Speak to our hearts. Father, you know the struggles and the pains and the joys and exactly where each person is at. Father, I pray that you would speak to each person individually, as only your Holy Spirit can do. Father, do a great work this morning. Oh God, I look to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. So I was asked to speak on the cross and and nothing else, no no other description on that. So what I decided to do was to take you through a passage that that I'm meditating on myself and meditating on for for quite some months now, particularly with my son. He and I are doing it together. And it's the last portion of Isaiah 52, verse 13. Isaiah 52, verse 13 through the end of Isaiah 53 is the portion we're meditating on, and it is so much indeed the message of the cross. And what I'm going to do, it's a little bit different for me, but I didn't know that I was speaking to the entire church today. I thought I was speaking to Frank Jones's class and, and, uh, and to a certain generation of people, because, uh, you know, I do tailor my messages for the different generations. Somebody just walked up to me and asked me how I like the contemporary service this morning. And remember, I'm around college students. I actually thought that was the traditional service. <laughs> so everything is, is, is a matter of perspective. What I'll do is I will read a portion from Isaiah 52 or Isaiah 53, and so that you know I'm reading from that portion, maybe I will, I will address that to the right, to, to my right, your left side, so you'll know when I'm reading from that portion. And then I'm going to grab other portions throughout the New Testament that I may or may not particularly cite, but trust me, it's from the New Testament. And I'll do some commentary as we go along, but probably keep that less, less than normal. Isaiah 52, verse 13 says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. So, look at what this man says. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. You want to see what it means to prosper? We get this vision that if somebody preaches prosperity, it means money. It could be. But this is not the prosperity that we see that God intended for His Son. His prosperity for His Son was very different. And so keep this as an overarching view that we are going to see the Son of God prospering in this passage. This is the passage of prosperity concerning the Son of God, then you decide, do you want to walk with Him? This is an indication of prosperity. Jesus said, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. 
But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death which he was to die. Imagine that. If I be lifted up from the earth, people would say, how conceited. But he was speaking of the death in which he was to die. This is prosperity. This is the cross. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And above his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. This was the inscription upon his head on that cross. Isaiah 53, 14 says, Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than, so his appearance was marred more than any man in his form more than the sons of men. It says the appearance of God was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. When I saw that, that movie, The Passion of the Christ, it was a real letdown to see his scourging. Because the scriptures said that of Jesus, his scourging, it so disfigured him as a man that you couldn't even tell. It says more than the sons of men, he was disfigured more than any man. You know, we have these movies that we show to our students as they start in the chemistry lab to give them a respect for chemicals to make sure they don't take this in a cavalier way and we require them to retake this every year. And it's this movie where they see pictures of what people look like who have had acid spilled in their faces by accident. Strong acid, strong bases and the disfiguring. It says that Jesus' appearance was marred more than any man. You know, for so long I struggled with what it meant to be a man. And I thought that I had to, had to be the life of every party. I had to have a girlfriend, maybe even a girl hanging on each arm, for it was really to be a man. I had to look a particular way. And all these things were beyond my attaining. There were things I couldn't get. And I bought into what the world had, not consciously, but certainly subconsciously. But look at what the image of this man is. So disfigured. In John chapter 19 it says, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him, And when Jesus came out, he was wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, and Pilate said, now remember, Jesus is coming out after his scourging so that he was disfigured more than any man has been disfigured. He was so disfigured in his scourging. More than any man in his scourging before him. Where the the, the flesh of his face was ripped and shredded. His body was shredded with these whips where they put in bone to rip the flesh. And he comes out and listens to the proclamation 
that Pilate proclaims. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. This is the image of a man that I will go to the cross for you, that I will lay down my life for you. This is the image of a man. You want to know what manhood is? This is the image of a man, that I give my life for you, is the image of a man, the way God puts an estimation on things. You teach your Bible study to the Houston Astros. And they said, how many of you feel like you've attained to manhood? None of them raised their hands. They said, isn't that interesting? My son hangs the picture of you men on his wall in his room. But all of us struggle struggle with what it means to be a man. But Jesus modeled that. You want to see the model of a man? It is, I give myself For you, behold the man that you would give your life for your wife, for your children. This is the model of manhood in God's estimation. Verse 15 from Isaiah 52. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. Now kings don't normally shut their mouths. They're the ones doing the talking. They come in their entire parade and they do the talking. It says in Matthew twenty-two twenty-six, 26, No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. And that's because his answer to them was so profound in its understanding concerning who the Son of David is that they were afraid to ask him yet another question. Since he will sprinkle many nations, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. He said, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. I have not an answer for you this morning, but I throw out some questions for you to think about. I hope I can shake up some preconceived notions in theology and just leave it shaken. I have no answer. Jesus said, my flesh is true food. The Bible here. This is the Bible. Maybe I'm speaking figuratively. Okay? This is a true Bible. Real Bible. Genesis to Revelation. This is a Bible. It is a true Bible. If I hold up an apple, say this is an apple. You say, oh well. He's speaking in metaphors. Speaking figuratively. So you it is a true apple. Then you say, okay, that's a real apple. Because Jesus said, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. 
wanted to really understand this one day, so I talked to one of my Catholic friends on campus, and I said, bring to me the highest priest you can bring. I want to understand this. We went to lunch, and I said, let me understand this. Do you believe that the, the bread and the wine is the true body and the blood of Jesus? He said, yes. I said, when does it become that? He says, when we pray over it. I said, okay, if you pray over this bread, and I look at the bread in my spectrophotometer before you pray over it, and then I stick it in my little instrument, and I still see the signals that come from this carbohydrate. I don't see a, pro- a protein signal. I said, after you pray over it, I can stick it in my instrument and see that it's gone from carbohydrate to protein. He said, no, it will still be carbohydrate. That's what you will see. I said, well, then you and I believe a lot alike. Because in the eyes of God, this is the very body of Christ. It is what it is. But in the eyes of God, it's the very body of Christ. He said, my blood is true drink. I said, if I... Stick this in my instrument and I see this stretch for water. And then after you pray over it, will I see this hemoglobin stretch for the porphyrin? He said, no. You will see exactly what you saw before I prayed over it. I said, you and I believe the same. Because in the eyes of God, this is the very blood of Christ. It is what it is. It is what it started out to be. But... In the eyes of God, it is the very body and blood of Jesus Christ because he said, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. That's what he sprinkled the nations with. It says in verse 16 of Isaiah 52, for what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. It's a very odd thing. What had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Certainly this refers to the Gentiles coming in to faith. And as the scriptures say in Acts 13.47, For the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And in Acts 28.28, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. What had not been told them, they will see. What they had not heard, they will understand. I shared a book with some of the, the members here in this fellowship of rabbis, of Jewish rabbis, coming to a knowledge of the Messiah. And again and again, it was Isaiah 52 and 53. They read in the synagogue is read from the law of Moses each week. And then through the scriptures, different portions. But there's a portion that is skipped. And that is the very portion that we are covering today. They skip this. And you ask a Jew, they say, no, we don't skip this. You go to the rabbi and say, when's the last time you read Isaiah, end of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53? It's not read. It's not read because it is so apparent. But what the scriptures promise us concerning our Jewish brethren, for what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. 
Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Jesus said to the religious leaders, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in him whom he sent. That's why the prophet Isaiah said, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 2 of Isaiah 53, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. I mean, imagine the humility of God to come as a baby. The humility of God. And that's where Simeon proclaimed, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Again, he knew that the Gentiles would come. And the glory of your people Israel... And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign of the opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. This is the cross. The cross brings a piercing of our soul. And this is prosperity. This is what it means to prosper. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Isaiah 53 says, He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. It says in John 7, 5, For not even His brothers believed on Him. I have heard Messianic scholars say that this tells us what Jesus looked like. You know, the Scriptures are very clear when it talks about really beautiful women. It says, for example, about Abigail. And she was a beautiful woman. Very beautiful woman. When, when people are the, on the extremes, the scripture mentions them. David was a handsome young man. Saul was handsome. King Saul. Head and shoulders above all men. Doesn't say Saul was an average guy. Regular old Joe. Never said that. It picked people on the extreme. It said of Eli, he was old and heavy. It says of Eglon, he was so heavy that when the sword went into him, it closed over the end of the dagger. The, the fat did. On the extremes, it mentioned it. But on the average, it never mentioned it. Here the scriptures mention what Jesus looked like. He had no stately former majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. So what these scholars say is that Jesus was probably five foot four with crooked teeth. 
What does that do to your image? There was nothing in the Messiah that drew people to him physically. Nothing. He was not head and shoulders above all men. He was not built. He was not ripped. He had nothing that attracted. Remember, it speaks on the extremes. On the extreme, it says, there was nothing in his appearance. If you don't particularly care for the way you look, maybe you look a lot like Jesus. There was nothing in him. You see, this is what prosperity is. I look at looks all the time. I met Frank Jones' daughter. I said, I've met your husband. He's a handsome man. He is. Uh, uh, Frank Jones' son-in-law, handsome guy. Remember the first time I met him, I said, wow, good looking guy. Nothing like that in Jesus that drew us to him. Remember, this is prosperity. Feel comfortable the way God has made you. Because God has made us in order to optimize the chances of our being drawn to Him. Because I know that if I looked the way I would like to look, I'd think a lot more of myself. And I'd kind of enjoy the way people looked at me. And I'd be drawn away from my Lord because I know the weakness of my own flesh. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised, in verse 3, and forsaken of men. He was despised and forsaken of men. Now, there are some people, I think, that don't particularly like me. But I don't know anybody that despises me, that actually thinks about, consumes them, how much they hate Jim to I don't think there's any, anybody like that. Maybe the devil is like that, but I don't personally know the devil. I don't know anybody who thinks that way of me. It says of my Lord, the one who prospers, the portion on prosperity, He was despised and forsaken of men. They hated him, despised him. The New Testament says, Jesus said, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And he who hates me hates my father also. And there was in a faculty meeting and uh, sat in this faculty meeting. And they were about to begin the faculty meeting and one guy said, before we begin this meeting, I just have to say, I can't even sit here. Because of this email that Jim sent out yesterday, he said, it was just so wrong, so totally inappropriate. And I'm looking around for another gym because I have no idea what this guy's talking about. He gets up and he says, I'm so flushed, I can't even stay here. 
And he got up and he walked out of the meeting and shut the door. I still didn't know what he was talking about. There were no other gyms in the room. What email did I send out? And so then the person running the meeting says, well, maybe we ought to discuss this. And then it occurred to me, I did send an email out to the department the, the day before, inviting them to a talk that was coming up by Hugh Ross on intelligent design on the Rice campus. And then the person leading the meeting went around and asked everybody what they thought of what was written. But they started to comment on many other things. Like one woman said, that Bible you gave me, when I first started here at Rice, terrified me. And I was trying to think, did I give her a Bible? I, I give so many people Bibles, I don't even remember. I don't even remember. My left hand doesn't remember what my right hand has done. I've just given away so much literature from my office. But I do remember her coming, and she was so depressed. I tell you, she was so depressed, I thought she was going to commit suicide. I did. So I met with her, and I talked with her, and, and I remembered then bringing her back to my office and giving her some literature. It must have been a Bible. Didn't know that all these years, all that was festering. One guy said, classic, classic statement. There are three axes of evil. Holocaust deniers, child pornographers, and intelligent design. After she went around the whole table, the person running this meeting said, wow, this is, I think we better go around one more time. <laughs> it says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. Jesus warned us that this is coming. So what I can do is I can suck my thumb, go sit in the corner and rock back and forth and have a little pity party and think how hard life is, how unfair my colleagues are. But Jesus said, get used to it. You want to walk with me, this sort of thing is going to happen. He was despised and forsaken of men. To cut a long story short, the man who walked out has become a dear friend of mine. I reached out to him. He's come back. He's apologized for what he said. And uh, he and I have become some of the best of allies. The man with the three axes of evil has come to me for counsel on several occasions. God has a way of moving things around. It says... In Isaiah 53, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus knew grief. Jesus wept when he saw that his friends were weeping over his dear friend Lazarus. It says, when Herod sent and had John beheaded in the prison, now Jesus heard about John. He withdrew there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. 
You'd think the Son of God would say, well, you know, the guy's in heaven with my father. He's better off. No, this hurt him. He experienced death. This cousin of his, he experienced death and the pain of it where he got in the boat by himself and got alone away. He was just overwhelmed. And if you've ever experienced death, you know, sometimes you just got to get away. That pain you have, he's had. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Again, it tells us he was despised. How many of us walk around and people look at us and they go, oh no, he's coming. You know, that doesn't happen to me. Once it happened to me. Once it happened to me. And, you know, this is before I was, I was walking with the Lord or anything, and one, one girl just did this to me, and to this day, it hurts. Many of us have experienced that. To this day, it hurts. I mean, Jesus went all over, and people were like, oh, no. Men hide their face from Him. This is prosperity. This is the cross. But they have done this, it says in the New Testament, to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. It's one thing to be hated for something we do. It's one thing to be disliked for something we do. And I've done a lot of silly things that have caused people not to like me particularly. But it's another thing to be hated without a cause. You feel as if you've been done a blow, dealt a blow unjustly? Well, wake up and get used to it. This is Christian life. Well, I'll get them. I will. They will hear from my lawyer. This is not what Jesus did. Unjust treatment is part of walking with God. To be unjustly treated. Surely our griefs, it says in verse 4, He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. It doesn't say He just got rid of our griefs. It says He takes them off of us and carries them Himself. They don't just wash away. He bears my grief. So that in Matthew chapter eleven twenty-eight, He says, Come to Me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. He says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Here, I will take your sorrows, I will take your griefs. You take my joy, you take my excitement. You take this from me. What a deal! What a savior we have. The one who was put on the cross. This is the cross. This is the message. This is prosperity. I'm going to skip down a bit. In verse 6 it says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Oh God, Thank you, because you understand me. A young lady came over last night with 
young man, and they're thinking about getting married. And this young lady was in our Sunday school class. She graduated from life in 2006, so she's been gone for four years. She works in Washington, D.C., came with this young man, but she would not entertain discussions of marriage with him until I had interviewed the guy. She felt her own father was too easy on him. And this is kind of a thing that I do with many of the young girls that attend my Sunday school class. And I, I ask hard questions. First, I want to see, are they saved? Tell me about how you got saved. And I want to hear about that. I want to hear what the life of Christ is doing in a person's life. And then I got alone with him. And I asked him the same questions I asked them all. And it's, there's no right or wrong answer in this. There's no right or wrong answer. You are who you are. I'm looking for how they respond. I just ask very simple questions like, have you had sex with a woman in the last two years? When's the last time you looked at pornography? Have you ever had homosexual sex? Have you ever been married? Do you have children? Do you have a criminal record? And we talk. And I look at their responses. Because there's no right or wrong answer. You are who you are. Something doesn't necessarily exclude you. And I looked at him, I said, you're not talking to a holy man. Because I want to see a response. And one guy once went, the guy last night, he passed, he was fine. I mean, he was a great guy. And this girl said, you know, I don't know if I'm too young, I'm 26. I said, let me tell you something, by the time you hit 30, there's not going to be too many of this type of guy left that hasn't been through some other marriage. Uh, one guy just thought, who are you to be asking this? Da, da, da. Well, it turns out he had a criminal record. Turns out he had been married before. In fact, he was married and going through what he said, an annulment. You know what annulment means? Annulment means if I marry somebody and then she told me she's, she's, not, she's never been married or divorced and I get married and I find out she was married and divorced, I can't get an annulment. That's just a lie. You don't, you don't, you know, somebody lied to you. An annulment means that she didn't have the right to be married because she's married to someone else already. Then you can get an annulment. I mean, this was, this guy was messed up. It's just simple questions. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Jesus took it all. Jesus took it all. It says, in, it says later on, he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. He didn't open his mouth. It says in Luke 23, verse 8, Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he wanted to see him for a long time. Because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. It says in the end of Isaiah 53, 
because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with the transgressors. Remember what I told you the Christian life is? Being numbered with the transgressors. You may have heard the story of the old, the old pastor who had never been married. At the time, he was 50 years old, and he was teaching a Bible study in his home. And a woman comes pounding on the door, he opens the door, and the woman hands him an infant child and said, This is your child, you raise her, and turned and walked away. His little congregation that was there in his home having a Bible study looked at him. There was nothing he could have said that would mean much at that point. And then the rumor mill started. He had to leave the pastorate. And he just became a carpenter. And for 15 years he cared for that little girl and raised her up. 15 years later the woman came back to town. And she confessed to what she had done. She said, this is not this man's baby. I did this because I knew that the girl would be well taken care of. But it was too late. The work of the cross had already been done in the man's heart. The work of the cross had already been done. Be numbered with transgressors is very, very hard. God puts this under the umbrella of prosperity. When you receive what you feel is unjust, don't be so quick to sue. Don't be so quick. Just remember Jesus. It says in the end of Isaiah 53, yet he bore the sins of many and he interceded for the transgressors. It is them who he loved. It says in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 24, But Jesus on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore he is able to also save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's Hebrews 7.25. He lives to make intercession for us, the scriptures say. Who is praying for us? It is Jesus. To the sheep that go astray, he lives to make intercession. This is the man who is highly exalted and prosperous. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for the truth of it. Thank you for what you deem as prosperity, as being high and lifted up. Father, I pray you teach us what it means to be a child of yours. That you teach these men what it means to be a man. Father, that if the world hates us, we know it's because it hated you first and it really can't hate us. It hates Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for what you give us. 
concerning being numbered with transgressors. Father, thank you for your mercies. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness. You are so good to us. Thank you, Lord, for the model of prosperity. Him who hung on the cross and bore our sins and our sorrows and our griefs. We commit this to you, my Father. In the name of Jesus. Amen.